0: Psychedelic science is exploding and we talk to people at the forefront. So cut through the noise, converse with the vanguard, this is Mind Manifest. Hi there and welcome along to the Mind Manifest podcast. I'm your host Niall Campbell. Today I was joined by Dr. Jessica Zitter. Jessica is a practicing physician working in the areas of palliative care and intensive care. She's also the author of the book Extreme Measures and the star of the Netflix documentary Extremis. I had a great time chatting to Jessica and it was lovely to chat to a physician who can straddle the worlds of technical expertise but also has a sensibility for what gets uh, uh, known in a derogatory sense as woo-woo. So it's always nice to see someone who can put both of those together in some sort of coherent rationale for practicing medicine especially around end-of-life care so enjoy the conversation and i'll see you on the other side (laughs) jessica thanks so much for coming on the uh, podcast at the top of what's probably a very busy day so i really appreciate your time
1: no problem happy to be here
0: so there are There is quite a lot of other content around your work, and especially in the wake of the, the Netflix documentary, but maybe for people who haven't encountered your work, could you give a bit of a zeitgeist as to how you would describe your current role, your current profession, and what it is that your day-to-day looks like?
1: Sure. Um, I uh, am a uh, pulmonary and critical care physician who trained... Here in the United States, obviously, um, and was very committed to this model of treating patients with everything we've got every possible intervention, uh, machinery, technology, medication, whatever it was that would help to con- sort of continue to rescue physiology as it was flagging. And um, in the early 2000s, I was a new ICU physician at a Inner City Hospital in Newark, New Jersey, and um, basically came across the very burgeoning palliative care movement in the United States because I happened to be working in a hospital that had won a grant around the issues of enhancing communication in in, in the intensive care unit. And so I reluctantly, and it was a very, you know, I, I describe this a lot in in my writings and particularly in my book, but I had this awakening, this epiphany. Um, of, um, realization that, that the, the approach, this philosophy that I had been pursuing of keep the heart beating at all costs was really causing tremendous suffering for people, um, and learned how through, again, this very early, uh, movement of palliative care to really think about a holistic approach to a patient and, and their entire being and their entire, uh, family and they're learning, they eliciting their preferences and values and began to realize that there was really a different way to do things, a, a way that was new that I had never been taught. And since that time, with the actual rise of the subspecialty of palliative care in the United States, uh, in 2008, uh, I became a trained pa- palliative care physician. So now I, I, I practice both intensive care and palliative care um, alternating uh, with this sort of straddling of this these two worlds and these philosophies which i think has really given me uh, a lot of insight at a 30,000 foot view um, of, of 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 the culture of medicine and so I do a tremendous amount of writing and uh, you and and other types of media including podcasts and movies uh, to bring the stories of end of life alive to, if you'll excuse the pun, to, to the public and to the healthcare community to really start to look at this in a different way. So, um, the past three, two, two and a half or three years, uh, have been spent really, uh, doing also in addition to my cult, my clinical work, a lot of advocacy work, uh, using my book uh, called extreme measures, finding a better path to the end of life. And this movie extremis, which is on Netflix, and speaking to many audiences across the country and even um, even internationally about uh, about about end of life and about what happens in hospital culture and how we, we might want to think about changing it.
0: Well, I will definitely be linking to those resources: the the extreme uh, measures, uh, extreme measures book, and then the documentary, um, of which are very prominent in, uh, in extremists. I must say the documentary. When someone said, Oh, there's a Netflix documentary about end of life care. I sort of stopped listening at Netflix documentary with all due respect to the platform, because some of them have been very agenda driven, but I found, I found watching it, it was very moving. And I felt like it did a very good job of just being a fly on the wall and sort of transcribing that poignancy without translating it to me with some sort of, this is the message. You know, I've, I was very impressed by the documentary, and I am so impressed that I would actually advise people to just pause if they're listening and just go and watch it because it's not very long. Um, it's only maybe like 24 minutes. and I want to just unpack that experience. What was it like to have ostensibly a film crew following in the room at some very... Um, intersectional moments in people's lives, you know, in some very high chart situations.
1: Well, it was one of the hardest things I have ever done, and I cannot imagine doing it ever again. <laughs> it was um, extremely difficult What for, on many, many levels. The, the movie came about because I was in the process actually of writing my book, and I happened to see another movie that had been filmed in our hospital called the waiting room and it uh, we we all saw it as a hospital staff at uh, one of the local movie theaters and it was so powerful it was telling story which is what i do Uh, but it was telling story on screen very very powerfully and i thought oh my goodness we need to have a film in the intensive care unit that's based around the work that i'm doing around decision making in in extremis decision making at the end of life, and 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 preparing people for this moment, so that people are thinking about this in advance, you know, advanced care planning, instead of just ending up unexpectedly in the in the in the intensive care unit with no planning and and complete emotional um, disaster, which is what happens uh, constantly, in, in, at least in the United States. And so I I went up to the director after I saw this movie, and I said, Oh my goodness, I have your next movie. Please, please come in and, and and film. And he, he said, look, I'm going on to do a different movie, and I could, he couldn't, and I would continue to text him over the f- course of the following year and say, look, Pete, I just had this great uh, interaction, this great conversation. It would have been so instructional if, if someone could have heard this on, um, you know, in a movie. And finally, after about a year of me bothering him, he, he referred me to another director who was a friend of his in, in between two films and so then this this director I, I had to really work to convince him to come in, and that this wouldn't be too depressing. And too he thought it was going to be too depressing to do a movie on end of life issues. He came in, followed me around in the intensive care, and and, and lasted about fifteen minutes the first time. And I, I he kind of ran out. He's just like this is too difficult. And I didn't hear from him for about a, a month. And finally he called back and said, you know what I I really think I need to look at this issue. And he came back, and that's when we really started filming. What happened? about uh, was was that it was on so many levels awful (laughs) one um my colleagues did not want to be a part of it which i didn't know until he was really there uh you know intensive care unit doctors don't like to be caught off guard it is so important to us to be these infallible firefighters and to think of having an actual film crew standing there when you're rounding and you've got Disasters popping up all around you it was just too. I think it was too. It was just not pe- what people signed up for, and frankly, it wasn't really what I signed up for. And all of a sudden, it just was there. So that was very stressful to be the face of this of this film and to be pushing for it. People saying, "Well, oh, is that your film crew? Your walk?" And to sort of feel like there was some sense that maybe you know there was some personal gain that it was that I was doing it for my own benefit. It was a very, it's very uncomfortable for physicians, as you know, to feel like you're making your patients, um, you're objectifying your patients or you're being voyeuristic or you're in any way making them more vulnerable than they already are. And so it was a sort of a, a, an identity issue as well. You just sort of feel like, what am I doing? Is this really right? And, and, and so uh, there was that whole element and then of course there was the technical element of getting people to agree to be in it because I was so afraid of taking advantage of people that I essentially told people they shouldn't, they shouldn't do it. (laughs) And so we only got a very small percentage of people to agree to do it. I I would say, look, almost nobody would agree to be in a film like this. This is really unusual and please, you know, this will not in any way impact your care. And, and I, frankly, I'd be surprised if you agreed to be in it. And so very small number of people, um, who we approached agreed to be in it. So, all that to say, this was a very difficult emotional experience. Uh, it was a difficult personal experience. It was a difficult professional experience. And frankly, technically, it was extremely, extremely difficult. And um, I'm glad we did it, but it was very, very hard. The reason it's a short film, by the way, it was supposed to be a long feature film, and we just couldn't keep going. We just emotionally both the filmmaker and I just said, we have to let's end it at 3 months and and see if we even have something here because we can't do any more. and that's why it's a short film.
0: I I think it, it's more effective as a short piece of work because it's like those it's like war poetry or something, you know, two stanzas makes more of an impact than, you know, a song, yeah. you know, a big epic. Right. Uh, you know there's there's a certain amount of time after which um, I think yeah, I think you have I think you hit the optimal spot of people being distraught and caring, but not then going into that cognitive overwhelm where they start to switch off and yeah. you know they don't really take any attention to it. So it doesn't sound like it was, and I can imagine because I have you know, friends and family members who are doctors and, and you know, work at the co-face of acute care, that would not, once that was announced, that was going to be happening on in the department, I cannot imagine that it was met with round enthusiasm no why did you why did you feel that you needed to put yourself through that what what what, it might seem like a banal question but why go through that what is the driving
1: concern it's a great question um there were i would have to tell you that pretty much every morning that i was going into the hospital when i knew this filmmaker would be there i would look at my husband filled with anxiety and say why am I doing, this is professional suicide. What am I doing? And I kept marching along for the same reason, really, that I kept marching along and writing my book. You know, I have been a writer since I was a young child. um, And I didn't publicize my writing most of the time. It was really for personal processing. And writing this book, which is a very, very internal look at my at my perceptions of the healthcare of healthcare culture telling stories that many people might recognize even though i had changed so many of the details for privacy reasons that that was such a frightening experience to and really because it's even more frightening in a way than extremists you don't necessarily have explicit knowledge of what i'm thinking in extremists in my book i am really processing psychologically this culture in which I, of which I am a part, and my own role in this culture, and my my own mistakes, and my own shame, and my pride, and my all of the things that are a part of being a doctor in America. Again, I don't know what it's like uh, on the other end of the of the sea, but it is um it is a profession filled with a lot of of complexity and 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 psychological discomfort that we don't tend to think about. So I, I really, the book itself was already an act of, I guess, courage and fear and incredible concern about reprisal. And th- that was exactly what the movie then became. But I was already in this process because the, mo- the book was already happening. And I'd already clarified to myself why I needed to proceed with this book and, and put it out there. Uh, which was that, you know, really, I'm trying to change things. I feel that we have such a problematic culture of healthcare in this country. And I really feel that I need to be someone to speak up about it. I don't think there's a lot of people who do want to speak up about it. I don't think there's a lot of people who want to sort of rustle the leaves, but I do. And I had made that commitment to myself. And that's just, this movie was a continuation of that.
0: Hmm. So sounds like uh, one of the things that you've, you've coined I don't know if you coined it but there's there's an element of coming to terms with your own possible possibly part of and then um, trying to transcend hero medicine
1: so yes. I don't know if, if
0: you could maybe unpack what what he, I think we we would have some idea but what how do you define hero medicine
1: well <laughs> It's funny that you ask because I one of the talks that I do and I've done in, in really a lot around the country is, is called a, a New Kind of Heroism. The, the heroism that the old, I'm going to talk about an old kind and a new kind of heroism. And the old kind of heroism is this heroism of action, of doing uh, to others something that you think is going to be a benefit without necessarily having much to say or talking, you know, the silent acting hero who applies interventions to, to, to a body or a person in distress and who saves the day and who has technical expertise and uses it without question. Um, the strong silent type that's, but, but, but who's filled with things, tools to pull out of, one's sheath that that was that was what i thought heroism was i um i come from a family of doctors a lot of most uh, most all, all men except for for one um my father's a nurse surgeon my my grandfather's a gynecologic surgeon er people running er's and just just a lot of, of very sort of silent but active people whose words are not questioned and who's just who are looked at as as these sort of icons of of knowledge and that was really what I thought medicine was supposed to be and what I wanted to be.
0: Is that like John Wayne in a white coat?
1: Kind of (laughs) that's a good one yeah yes I think so and um, that's that's exactly right.
0: I would be remiss if I didn't notice I don't let's not get in here we'll both get in twitter trouble but there's a there's a there's a machismo to that, and there's just there's a cultural shift which seems to be happening in terms of how we deal with the more squirrelly things. So I suppose that refers to the second type of heroism. Would that be fair to say?
1: <laughs> yes. I mean, I think the second type of heroism is the heroism of sort of internal, you know, internal reflection and and external compassion in humanism, and really understanding that it's not about my actions, it's really about the experience of the patient and doing everything possible to maximize the the patient's experience and the patient's dignity, self self-defined dignity and the you know th- this is I think manifested beautifully by the palliative care movement, which really really thinks in, in so many sort of 360 degrees about this person and, and just trying desperately to serve this person with whatever is most appropriate at the time. And, you know, I just wrote an article in Annals of Internal Medicine called Being Relevant. And it sort of talks about my processing of having gone from being an intensive care unit doctor at the top of the heap, you know, at my, the, the, the sort of the top of the hierarchy in the hospital, the most respected, the most, you know, the most relevant. And then going into this work where I'm part of a team with a chaplain and a social worker. And so often my work as the doctor is, is frankly less important than the other types of work that, or the other types of things that are needed by the patient. And so it's the sense of, wow, you know, all of a sudden I'm a part of a team. I'm not this, this, this top of the hierarchy. And I think it's, it's, being able to be, and I struggle with that, by the way, this is not easy for me. I am, there are times when I think, shouldn't I just go back to just being an ICU doctor? Because I wonder, what am I really adding here? And I have my own internal insecurities about that. So that piece, which I'm happy to send to you, um, is is really about that. But I think that's what the new kind of heroism is, is really thinking about the patient and, and bringing humanism back into the practice of medicine, we've, which we've lost.
0: Could I maybe almost push back against that on your behalf? Because mm-hmm. I am um, obviously I'm coming from the world of psychotherapy, so right. it's like touchy-feely. You know I, mean? <laughs> I feel maybe atypical on that because I'm I maybe a bit more of a because I'm from a similar type of family. It's all about fixing, you know. But yeah. I am concerned that there might be a jettisoning in of too much relativism, where it's like there's absolutely. There's absolutely nobody in charge. The way I think about it is, maybe the palliative care team or the multidisciplinary team is like a football team, but it still needs a quarterback. Yeah. And I would say, I would say, that, uh, that the doctor should be the quarterback. I think you guys are okay to hold your hand up and say that.
1: That's an interesting. You know, it's 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 a it's a perspective that's debated, in many places. Um. The the team where I first learned how to do palliative care, which is in Newark, New Jersey, is a nurse-run team. Very proudly so. There aren't a, a I would say the majority of teams, palliative care teams in the United States are physician-led. But there are some that aren't. And they very proudly state that that in fact they really, you know, they're they're just as they're just as impactful, if not more. I don't look, as a doctor, I would like to think there's still some extra level of relevance for me that there's something about my training that makes, maybe there's just something about my personality that makes it natural for me to be the leader of the team. And maybe that's, you know, I I can't really personally think of what that would be. I think I happen to come from a place where I already wanted to be leading a team. So maybe for that reason, I might have certain qualifications to lead just because I've been doing that for so long. And it's part of my personality, but in, but I know many, many, many palliative care doctors who are very happy not to be the leaders and who, you know, and for whom a strong chaplain, uh, is a, is a welcome leader. So, you know, I do agree with you. I think that you do have to have some leadership and, um, in our, in our particular team, we actually struggle with that a little bit because, um, the doctors naturally end up leading and sometimes that causes resentment. So I don't know what the answer is. I think it's a very quirky question, not question, but it's a, I think it's, it's specific to the institution itself, to the division and you have, but there does need to be some leadership, but how does that manifest? I mean, our chaplain leads our morning check-in. She just leads it and we love that. And, and I, I don't want to be leading that. She kind of helps to, to lead that experience. That's a very important experience to start the day. Um, but I think that's a, that's an open question still, honestly, I don't know that there's a real answer that's universal uh, to who should be leading a team like that.
0: I've heard you tell an interesting story to talk about your chaplain. And this is in a way is, uh, maybe a sort of iteration of the model of who's in charge, because you, you tell a story about how a client a patient, I should say, had a, a spiritual, was spiritually suffering mm-hmm. and you had to take a backseat because it wasn't really physiological
1: mm-hmm. and you
0: asked, uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that. I, I'm sure you remember the story I'm talking about with you and Betty and the, the client, the young lady who, yeah. if you could maybe recount that. Cause I thought that was very instructive as to how the leadership, the hat can switch from one team member to the other.
1: Yeah. That was actually the article that I just referenced uh, from uh, the annals of internal medicine uh, called being relevant. It was um, a moment where we had a patient who really wasn't at that very moment. She, she actually, speaking of addiction, this young woman was uh, addicted and we were trying to sort of manage her opioid use. And she, she had a big laryngeal cancer. So there was not, um, there certainly was reason for pain, but it was a lot of um, sort of management and, and, and contracting and, but the reality, and we, we had come to create a relationship with this woman who had been, she's homeless. And so she was in and out of the hospital a lot. And, um, but I actually, um, you know, Betty, th- this was on an, uh, a readmission of hers and things were just going very badly for her. And I, I w- walked in and she clearly just was filled with this incredible, profound uh, desperation and and sort of crisis. And it was really clearly spiritual. And so I went and I, I said to her, you know, would it be okay if, if I came back with our chaplain and, and we came back and Betty just was the person uh, who had what this woman needed. It it wasn't me. There wasn't anything necessarily active going on medically. And what I realized in that moment was all I wanted to do, as Betty clearly kind of clicked in and engaged with this this woman, was move on to the next patient. Because I noticed myself just sort of sitting there awkwardly in the back of the room and feeling very... uh, just unhelpful and unuseful, and frankly, unimportant. And um, I realized that what I typically do is I do move on to the next page. Okay, Betty, I'll meet you upstairs. Um, but Betty put her arm on on my her hand on my arm and said, "Let's pray." And and I stayed with her, and and she started to pray, and I watched this woman's face, and it was really the the therapeutic intervention that this woman needed, she needed to be spiritually supported. And it was just this, the articles about my mixed feelings about having this, you know, teammate who quite frankly, uh, I have not, I mean, I love Betty. I've worked with her for many, many years, but I have not thought of chaplaincy as, as an essential offering for our patients. And here she is performing this sort of what I had thought of subconsciously, I wouldn't have admitted it, as an unessential offering and realizing that it was the most important thing we could do and feeling like I had simply nothing to offer. Like I wasn't the leader. I wasn't the most important person in the room. And Betty made me stay. And it just was a cause of tremendous reflection. What does it mean to be part of a team? What does it mean to hand off the baton to somebody else and to still stay and witness the person and the experience? and to not have to be the most relevant person in the room. And I just think, I don't have an answer for it. It's uncomfortable, but what I do know is it's that discomfort, which we should be reflecting on as a healthcare community. Because if everyone agrees that it's the doctor who's always the most important person, then we are really not making place at the space at the table for all of the other interventions that are so critically important to patients. Um, and that hierarchical structure that I'm just so used to in the intensive care unit really, it, it, I don't know that it has a necessary role in every other aspect or every other location of care, if that makes sense. So I just think it's a reflective moment that we really need to look at our ourselves and our own feelings and need for being, for being important.
0: I think, um, that need for, uh, you know, as they say, must do as a great master. So, these increasing periods of time when people are ostensibly terminally ill. I suppose in the past, it's almost like medicines, physiologies, a uh, uh, physicians are a victim of their own success because people now live in a sort of end of life ambiguity for longer conditions that would have killed people in weeks and months now can people can live for years. So all of a sudden, in that interstitial period, there are different skill sets that need to, to come online. The reason I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the um, your experience, that sort of collaborative experience with a chaplain, was there's something coming down the pipeline from, from my neck of the woods, and that is um, the research that has been done in Johns Hopkins by Roland Griffiths using uh, psilocybin to treat end, end of life anxiety. An interesting, and it's being, I've spoken to Martin Williamson, the scientific officer at Mind Medicine Australia. They're, they're looking to replicate this um, in St. Vincent's Hospital there. But the previous uh, inclusion criteria was end-of-life terminally ill with cancer. But they've now opened it up to just terminal ill patients um, with different um, conditions. What they may very well find is what they found in the Johns Hopkins study, the squirrely problem. Not problem, but the squarely finding that the occasioning of mystical experiences by the psychedelic compounds correlated in a statistically significant way with clinically significant reductions in uh, depression and anxiety as separate from existential concern. So, you know, they just didn't qualify in the same way of having psychological questionnaires just revealed significant reductions in the amount of anxiety and depression. So the psychedelic community is having to have this conversation because there's this, those supposedly non-overlapping magisteria of science and religion are uh, very difficult. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, to get a physician's eye view on what depression and anxiety actually looks like on the ward.
1: Yeah. Oh um, my goodness. Yeah. From your- yeah. Well, I'm really excited about the work that I'm seeing coming out. You know, and I'm particularly, I live in Berkeley, California. So this is really the epicenter in some ways. Well, maybe, maybe I know they're doing work at, at other places, but, but there's a lot of, of writing coming out. Michael Chabon, and, you know, in, in the sort of the lay community. Um, um, and um, uh, not Michael Chabon, but Michael Pollan. And, um, uh, I yell at Waldman who've both written books out of Berkeley about this sort of the use of psilocybin and other types of psychedelics just for the management not of uh, non-terminal conditions of, of anxiety and depression. And again, the, the data's obviously trickling in now, but it's really uh, anecdotally looking pretty impressive. And so much of what I see with my patients and what I could imagine my own experience being, if I were, sort of diagnosed at this reasonably young age with, with something terminal, it's just this profound um, anxiety and sort of fear of, of, of death. There are many people that I have met, uh, not patients, but, but Buddhists, people who really have made a practice of, of, of thinking about death and, and of, of, Preparing themselves for death, of incorporating death into their daily, their daily practice. Who, you know, there's just actually an article right now about these two women who are both very active in the palliative care world, um, one of whom is dying, uh, their partners, and just talking about, about how they're processing this in a in, in a way that they're they're putting all of their energies and talents into now managing this reality in their lives. But I think this is a part of the experience of dying. It, it, you know, it is a very um, profoundly sad and frightening experience for most of us humans. I mean, I think it sort of uh, it, it just kicks in, and so I think that the idea of having um, medications that could come in and do the work that mindfulness true mindfulness and meditation meditation practice might be able to do for somebody that most of us don't have uh, could be incredibly helpful and an incredibly heavy lift uh for helping people to experience the, the last parts of their lives in a way that has the best quality possible so i'm i'm excited uh, about this um it's obviously had this tones of it being uh, illicit uh, being illicit and uh, since the 60s when from what i understand a lot of the research was uh, tamped down. But I do think that having any new medication on on the horizon that could really help people through this really important emotional transition, I think would be just unbelievable.
0: I think um, that's a really good point about um, the sort of crossover. I don't think it's coincidental that a lot of the people who were part of that, uh, let's say West Coast liberal intelligentsia who were taking psychedelics from an exploratory perspective so many of them are now um, very big advocates of mindfulness because a lot of them will say those psychedelic experiences very very important for me and they undergirded a now 20 30 year old mindfulness practice which yeah. will no doubt serve them very well in end of life conditions but for the, for the rest of us sort of <laughs> mortals or people who, who, you know, uh, struggle to meditate on a regular basis. <laughs> right. I think that, you know, it could be a case of a, uh, you, you don't want to panacea, you don't want to shortcut it, but a truncated experience of some sense of peace, uh, that can serve you well in, uh, these quite traumatic experiences would be extraordinarily helpful. I, I think, um, and it's a conversation that I really want people to start having with themselves and, and their, their partners, and because a lot of people are going to p- find themselves in, in palliative wards and ICUs and, and hospices before these things are mainstream. You know, there's just going to be a lag time, as there always is in science. Yeah. And there's there's a there's a there's a term that I've heard you use a few times, which would be good to illuminate in in that regard, which is the end of life conveyor belt. I've Heard you refer to that quite a few times, but could you maybe unpack what there is to be expected for, let's say, North Americans listening from the US more specifically? Because it sounds like there's a sort of general societal ignorance of what actually happens if you get terminally ill.
1: Yes. Well, I'm curious actually how it, how it might be different in, in Great Britain, but we here, you know, you've just de- I've, I've described to you this this. Old kind of heroism, which I think is so alive and well, and and, and and frankly, not just emotionally a relief for us to engage in as physicians when we don't have anything else to, to, to quell the suffering and the fear and the pain of death, we can at least do something. Um, but it's also um, it's something that patients love, the, the idea that there's just, okay, what's the next thing you're going to try? And so I call that an end of life conveyor belt. We see it particularly in the intensive care unit where, you know, with each failing organ as a body progresses towards death, there is something, there is some protocolized intervention that can be applied, whether it's going to make any difference in, in the sort of, um, big picture. It doesn't really matter. It's almost the process of doing it. It's, it's sort of like mindful, mindless eating. It's mindless medication or mindless interventions. And we can't really even, we just don't know how to sit still and provide other types of interventions of the, of the, of the heart, the spirit. We just know how to do these interventions. And so I call it a conveyor belt um, where this patient is kind of moved along and serviced um, as their organs fail. And we, uh, who are doing the servicing are technicians. We are technicians on a conveyor belt. And um, so that, that is really, you know, and by the way, it's not just in the intensive care unit. We have it in the oncology world. When you have somebody who comes in with a, with a cancer and you, you know, you start your first line of chemotherapy and then that stops working. And then you start, you throw in some different kinds of things, even as the patient is really progressing towards death and it's just, again, this mindlessness of, well, next we'll try this and then we'll try this and then we'll, and we don't even ask the patients. We don't even sit with the patients and discuss the benefits and the burdens in context before making the decision to, to do it or not to do it. It's just this sort of a, a recipe of, of treatment. So that's, that's the end of life conveyor belt. And people don't, I think one of the beautiful things about extremists, um, which by the way has been sort of went viral and, 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 you know, it's, I think it's been seen more than a hundred million times, um, maybe even more than that. It's really uh, been something that's captivated people because it has this emotion. It's a cinema verite. It's, it's very, it's powerful. It's not didactic. It's not a narrative. It's just, you're, you're looking over the shoulder of, of the ICU team and, what I'm so frustrated about is that this film has such power to show people the end-of-life conveyor belt and then to help people figure out, okay, so now what? And I didn't know that I needed to be ready uh, for this film with uh, sort of uh, an accompanying lesson plan. That sounds very dry and boring, but some kind of material around this film that in which it, it could be watched... And then people could, could, could process it. I mean, I have all of this stuff. I just have been so busy. I haven't had a chance to put it together and put it on my website. So now um, we have a second movie coming out, um, which is really a film about caregiver burden. And um, it really shows uh, another aspect of this, of this, of this world where you might decide, okay, I'm ready to sort of forego active treatment of the disease. And now I want to go home on hospice. But Even that decision needs to be processed in a way that's going to work for your family because that in and of itself isn't, uh, you know, the ball isn't kicked through the goal when you say, okay, now I'm doing hospice. You've got a lot of other issues that can come up around, frankly, the burden on the caregivers and how, how do we process that? It's not to say people shouldn't go home to die. That's where most people want to die, but we need to, at least in America, do a better job of supporting people even when hospice is called in. So these two films are both obviously extremis, and this new film are short films. They're both very important topics that um, people need to understand. One extremis being the end of life conveyor belt in visual reality, and then this other one about caregiver burden. And I feel that they they need to be uh, they need to be accompanied by available materials uh, and an experience that goes around the movie, uh, so that people can then say, okay, so now what do I do? Um, anyway, that was a a segue, uh, about around the end of life conveyor belt. Um, but it's an important concept. And I think that this film really does a good job of showing you what it is and hopefully making people take notice and say, oh my goodness, wow, I didn't know about this. Um, let me, let me learn more. We, we've been using extremists, uh, you know, to teach high school students. And by the way, um, uh, there's an article that I wrote called first sex ed, then deaf ed about the idea of teaching, you know, we, we have sex education. I assume you do too, uh, of our high school students. It's sort of a, almost a civic responsibility of a society to teach its high school students about how to manage their bodies. And I think I would make an argument that the exact same teaching is important f- for them around the issues of death. Why not teach 18-year-olds how to fill out an advanced directive and how to think and and understand the end-of-life conveyor belt so that they can make plans in advance with their loved ones about how they and their loved ones want to proceed through serious illness. Um, and so um, we're using it in many, many different communities and populations, but the, the film itself really does show the end-of-life conveyor belt in all of its glory, as you might say.
0: Well, the As you were t- mentioning the this sort of viral sweep of this, the tell me what you think of this, my my sort of empirical brain turns on and goes, okay, a hundred million of anything is a lot Mm -hmm. that suggests an unmet treatment need, a societal need. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're in a new era of media and people have been watching stuff and thinking they like it but what they don't want is glossy, you know, everything's going perfect.
1: Grey's Anatomy.
0: Truth. <laughs> I was, I'm thinking that, okay, because there's and there's something overlaps with that. The opening scene, which I can just describe, is it's so sad where you're trying to communicate, this lady is trying to communicate with you by writing, and she just can't make even a coherent letter.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, the thing that I found, and this might seem Facetious and totally tactless, but it was so sad. I was on the verge of tears, but it's also This I've spoken to this with another doctor recently and many doctors about this there is a type of tragedy and almost comedy of reality so they're so close bedfellows whereby mm-hmm. you look at Grey's Anatomy and it's like we're not losing another one and some other <laughs> bullshit thing which you can't I, I stopped watching television programs about medicine with my medical friends and family because the eye rolls are going through their head you know it's just not <laughs> not fun to watch. the worst people are. but you understand that it's I was going you're an expert in your field but you're not perfect and that the, the the beauty of the show is that you guys are making tough calls and not doing them perfectly and people are starving for the truth and it doesn't matter what the medium is i think i think that explains the rise of podcasts as well because we don't want glossy things and i still have to fight the impulse to to make this hey welcome to the blah 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 people want the truth And the truth is that where life is broken and messy, and the end of life is an absolute distillation of that. Yes. And we need to have these. I don't know. That has been something which I've been trying to almost police when I talk about it. But
1: yeah, Yeah.
0: humor, humor, and the tragedy of life are the humor and the tragedy of life are so so close. I don't know if you have any thoughts or your sort of visceral appreciation of that.
1: (laughs) yes I think that if you cannot see the humor in what's happening even in these moments of tragedy uh, whether it's about yourself or about even about your patience and your you know you cannot keep going because the human spirit will be crushed by the profound suffering that you see. And not to say that it's funny that someone's suffering, it's never, never, never funny when someone's suffering, but to be able to, to bring some levity to your own interpretation of what's going on so that you can keep going is, is important. I, I, again, never at the expense of anybody, but there it, the the burnout of doing this work is is great and burnout some people say oh that's such a self victimization uh attitude you know i'm burned out i'm so tired but the truth is that it is very very hard to witness suffering every day multiple times a day which is what we do and you, you cannot carry on and maintain your compassion if you don't have uh ways of bringing up the mood and so it's just it's it's complicated it's very very complicated i mean the compassion can fizzle if you are just too overwhelmed by the emotion and you don't want that you really don't want to be fizzling compassion that's why palliative care has to be done in team you know, you can't do this work alone. You need other team members who are going to witness your own distress, your own, you know, max being maxed out and be able to say, okay, let's go get an ice cream cone. Let's go do something. Let's go take a walk. Let's go, you know, say some, talk about a joke or make, or, or make something funny right now, because otherwise you just can't keep going.
0: I wanted to talk to you about um, your your death ed program, but before we get into your death ed program, I feel that you should be struck off for the fact that I understand you did the sex ed program at your daughter's school. I'm trying to imagine my mum coming. I don't think that should be allowed. I think that should be. I want to. I want to. I want to pick, pick your brains about about that because that would have been one of the most excruciating experiences of my life. I'm glad that it never happened.
1: Yes, it was the most excruciating. I think experience both of my daughters' lives. I didn't. My son didn't get it because he. I, it was. It was a, a private, a small parochial school, and women didn't teach the boys. But they were mortified and I spent much of the time with one of my daughters came in late and sat with her backpack in front of her face the entire time. But it was that experience that you know. Uh, made me realize how critically important it is that number one, death ed be learned in high school. And number two, that i go in and teach it because there wasn't anyone else to do it. The reason I was actually out there in front of my kids' classes teaching sex ed was because there was nobody else to do it. It was a small school. There were no other people who just who, who were interested, willing, or had any kind of expertise to teach it. And so I said, okay, I, you know my kids need to learn sex Ed, and I guess I'll go in there and I created this PowerPoint slide. Uh, that that I was laughing as I was creating, it because I was getting, quite honestly, I just wanted them to know everything, and and I wanted them to know it in all of its glory and and gruesomeness, and you know, I I'm not proud, but I I wanted them to be a little afraid and to 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 really really be educated about all of the untoward things that can occur, and so that that class is still being talked about, you know, many years later by their friends. It was, I think, very instructive. And really gave them, um, we're talking about roofies. I don't know if you know what those are, but, you know, uh, we, we talked about everything. We talked about body image and, and we talked about herpetic penises. I mean, we, we went right in there. And I think it really, you could say scarred, but you could also say, um, was it imprinted? <laughs> oh, very important information on these young girls. Um, and so I, I I just can't imagine that you know, in the same way that they absolutely needed this information and there was no one else to teach them. I felt this, I feel the same exact way about death. We, every Friday night, you know, we sit around our Shabbat table and we talk about things and pretty much every night, every one of those nights, death comes up. My, one of my patients, something, you know, it, it is One my daughter once said to me about a couple of years ago, mom, can we have one Shabbat dinner where we don't talk about death? And I just felt like, why should my kids be the only kids hearing about death? Why shouldn't their friends? And so when extremists came out and all of my friend's children who were the same ages as mine, they were all teenagers came and saw it. I realized, oh, wow. You know what? This isn't something that's going to make kids run out of the room, screaming and, and wanting to commit suicide. This is a topic that kids are actually probably in some ways, even more open to learning about than adults. And why are we not taking this opportunity? Where we've got this captive audience to teach kids about this critically important stage of life, teach them about the end of life conveyor belt. I want them to learn. If, if I had to pick, you know, do the cherry picking about what are the most important topics that an 18 year old should understand about end of life. It should be about the end of life conveyor belt. And I, I want them to at least understand. And so we, we, we put up, we showed them extremists and then we showed a short clip of Grey's anatomy. That was outrageous. And it is so hilarious to see the difference between these two approaches that these kids just couldn't not understand the, the incongruity of this and the, and the fact that they're getting fed a lot of media um, bull, uh, as we say. And uh, so I think it was instructive and important. And will start a conversation for those kids for the rest of their lives.
0: I think um, the stats are pretty clear um, on schools that don't have sex ed. All of the metrics that they're supposedly trying to avoid by not having those conversations whether it's ST, STIs or you know unwanted pregnancies etc the data's in if you don't talk about it those metrics blow out and I would say that it would be the same for a, a death ed program if, you're, if your metric was to you know a longitudinal study say in 40-50 years you do a questionnaire of a thousand kids in a school district and say of which some proportion are going to die, and you ask their closest relevant relatives, did this person die? On a scale of one to ten, ten being the perfect death that they wanted, and zero being none. You know that the people who got death ed programs would get closer to their ten. I, I just see that as being a, yeah. a, an experiment that needs to be run. But I, I'd be pretty. I'd bet my two front teeth that people who have an education about it when they're young make Absolutely. better life decisions. Uh, maybe even physiologically, I think just having a conversation about death—it's like ding dong, kids, you're mortal. So you know, while your while your prefrontal cortices are developing, don't be doing too many stupid things. You know, it, just, it probably has a, a side effect of helping them live better. Um, I well, I just have to tell you this quick funny story because well, this shows how I think kids can take this. This helicopter parents, listen up, please. I was at a funeral of my uncle during the week. He had a long and happy life and a good. it was a good death and a big Irish wake. And then we were at the funeral. My niece, who's, I'm just putting this on record so I can laugh at her when she's older, when she's of age, but she's um, she's not much older. She's just starting school. And the coffin's at the front of the funeral. Everybody's kids are there. The kids aren't losing their minds. You know, Of course, they're not taking it in at the level that um, the adults are. Mm-hmm. And my sister, who's a resuscitationist, started laughing and, and she's in the pew beside side. What are you laughing at? She says, Isabel just leaned up to me and said, um, When is he going to get out of the coffin? <laughs> like she thought it was like a magic, magic trick. Now, that was, a, we were sad. You know, we were then some minutes from going to the grave. The younger kids, you don't necessarily take them to the graveside. But I have cultural experience of how if people say, Oh no, kids couldn't possibly hear with it. I tell you what, when it comes to these types of topics, I think kids are made out of Teflon.
1: Oh yeah, they are. (laughs) I would have to agree with you one hundred percent. Oh, that's so that is very funny. What's a resuscitationist?
0: Oh, I should. She's um, an ED consultant, but that's her sort of specialty. So that's, and I might chat to her because she's she's right at the cool face of you know, if I'm uh, if I'm blood spewing out of me, she's the person I want. Bringing me back, mm-hmm. we didn't even get into that about the technological imperative and how uh, I, I, I will link to some resources. I didn't want to go over topics. I'll link to quite a few resources of podcasts where you've covered, you know, the more legalities behind this, and you've done. Thank you for doing so much advocacy because it makes people like me our job easier because we can cross reference.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I wanted to just touch base, uh, Jessica, with you, not as a doctor, not as a mum, not as an advocate. If if you could open up a box and inside was your worst end of life fear, what's in that box?
1: Mm, that's a great question. Um, for sure, it is being alone. Being alone. I really have to say, every time I think about my own death, the things that I realize are most important to me are are being with my family, having friends around just knowing that I'm not alone. The idea of dying alone is one of the saddest things for me that I can imagine. Um, And so, you know, the idea uh, honestly of being in a ventilator facility uh, without being able to to get up or move and having, you know, being attached to these machines and having people not able to, or around me, not able to visit is just incredibly sad. That's probably my biggest fear.
0: And what, ab- and what about in another box? This is, um, an even worse thought experiment <laughs> if you could, uh, if you could, well, it's a nicer one, but it's fairly poorly structured. Um, I've been getting quite a bit of abuse. I, I asked in the last podcast, if you had a realistic magic wand and a, a listener messaged me and said, I don't think you really grasp the concept of what a magic wand is. <laughs> realistic Um, magic wand yeah exactly well okay let me ask you that if you had a realistic magic wand and you can tap this box and turn it into nice things and it's got two compartments one is woo woo and one is nuts and bolts and i'm talking the best of you know technological care Uh you, you would want and also then those little interstitial moments of human contact that's for the good deaf so you've just. You know, you're being alone when you die is, is that thing that you now know is the thing that you need to set up a system to avoid.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So you know what you're running away from. What are you running towards in your end of life directive? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I mean, it's it's hard to do an either or because, you know, the fact is, and this is one of the trickiest parts of this work, that there's there are these things that even we in the me- in medical profession think of as potential miracles. You know, what about immunotherapy? What if you could be one of that, you know, 15% of people who is on death's door and tries this next immunotherapy and gets another really good six months? I mean, who wouldn't want that? All right. And so, um, I mean, I've seen that happen. It's extremely rare, extremely rare, but it happens. And so the fact that that's even out there makes it hard for even the most wizened of us <laughs> uh, to just throw away uh, the Western medical model completely. Cause you want to make sure that you, you know, that your, your healthcare team knows about every possible thing that might work. But the, the reality here in, I wrote an article called miracles don't come cheap, which is really about the fact that those quote unquote, miracles are very, very rare. I don't care what the, you know, Cancer Center, Treatment Center of America tells you on their, on their, on their many ads that they run every day about how they, they can fight everything. The fact is these are rare and, you know, people going for that next thing are really risking losing a lot. But so take that out of the picture. Um, if you are now at a point where you really have gotten the information that there isn't any more disease-focused treatment that is going to be of any benefit, then the wand that I would want to to wave—that realistic magic wand—would be one of existential peace and a sense of well-being, um, a sense of the calm that I get in my best moments of mindfulness when I'm, you know, in those moments where I actually feel a sense of, I have no control and it's okay. That, that, that peace to, to, to be able to blanket myself in that kind of peace that, that would be the biggest gift uh, that I, that I, that I could ever ask for. Um, and I don't know how to get it. And I'm hoping that maybe the the research on the psychedelics and this is a great way to sort of bring it around. Could could give us that because what a gift for people to have that sense of well being as they're as they're starting to exit this world.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's why we need to talk and talk and talk about it because it isn't appropriate for someone to be in the midst of dying and someone to just you know, lace their drink with psilocybin, that's not, that's, that's not ethical. <laughs> <Probably it's>, there <laughs> needs to be, there needs to be on the, on the advanced uh, directives. Uh, listen, I, I'm conscious of your time, Dr. Zitter. I really appreciate and I, I had a ball and there's 101 things I could ask you again. Um, I'd love to have you back on in the future. Uh, Great. If you'd be willing to, to pick out some other things. And um, if people are keen to, I'll obviously link to a lot of these resources. But if people are keen to deep dive into this topic, either professionally or probably more likely just from a personal perspective, to start having these conversations with their family and their friends, where would you direct them to find out more about your work?
1: Well, at the risk of uh, sounding too sort of self-referential, I would really direct people to my book because my book not only is sort of a cataloging of the many different issues then that will come up um, and many different potential obstacles. But then at the end of the book, I have a very robust appendix, which um, can help walk people through what to do. What are all of the things that you need to think about and what are all of the behaviors and how do you cross all those T's and dot all of those I's? Um, so it's a story driven experience to read the book it's all you know stories and narrative but then it at the end really does guide you through to uh figuring out what to do next and um i would love uh for people obviously take a look at my website which has a lot of my articles and um we have a and and uh, we have a lot of we have a podcast coming out actually in a couple of days um and uh, there's a lot of, uh, again, the movie I mentioned and a, and a couple of other movies, we have a movie coming out on death ed. Um, that is in its final sort of editing stages. So if people are interested in, in. Seeing the work as it comes out and reading some of the stuff that I've written with, there's much of it. Um, please go to jessicazitter.com and and uh, sign up for my newsletter and, uh, follow me on, on social media and, um, uh, and do that. There's, all, there's lots of other resources that I list in my book that I think are very helpful as well. Um, so that, that's another, um, I have a lot of, of resources um, listed on the website and in my book as well that can be helpful.
0: I want to add one that you've got to. You've got to add into the marketing team. I've got to get you narrating that PowerPoint of the sex ed talk that you gave to your daughters. You got to get that. <laughs> I've,
1: I, I do have yes. that. I'd be happy to share that as well. Well, there we go. I tell you what.
0: I tell you what. You put that up there. Well, that'll go viral. Hundred million views. Forget about it. We're it's pretty gruesome. And on half a billion. That's all the better. That's that's what people are after nowadays. They just want the truth. <laughs> <laughs> you've got a sideline there Esther Esther Perel eat your heart out you. that's right oh that, that
1: <laughs> sounds great that sounds great
0: uh, listen, listen it was, it's been a ball and um, good luck with all your work thanks for um, thanks for going through the um, gauntlet of ex, not exposing their own word but illuminating what happens when we die and helping us to
1: die here's to dying well here's to dying well <laughs>
0: Well, thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. I I certainly did, and I would really love to chat to Jessica in the future in person. Um, You can obviously tell from the conversation that she's surrounded by a lot of different people in her neck of the woods who are pushing the needle with regards to the psychedelic renaissance, so I think that might warrant a trip uh, stateside sometime in the future. In terms of upcoming guests in the next few weeks, we will be chatting with Dr. Sebastian Knudsen, who's another um, expert in palliative care and the reason that I want to drill down on this topic so much right now is so that we have a good context of understanding for what end-of-life care actually looks like so that assuming that all of the psychedelics that are coming through the research protocols get approved you will have a good understanding for what they're going to be superimposed onto. We're also hopefully going to be chatting to Mendel Kalen who's the um, curator of all of the music that has been used in the Imperial Trials. And we'll also be releasing a podcast for a conversation that I had with Manuel Guzman, who is an expert in cannabinoid research. So until then, take care.